Welcome to the RCPS Community Partner Cafe. We're glad you're here. This podcast is for parents, community partners, and anyone interested in learning more about education, child development, and other topics related to Rockingham County Public Schools, Virginia. I am your host, Katie Lapira, Coordinator of Community Engagement, along with school social worker Donna Delisle. Let's get started. Hi, welcome to episode number three of the Community Partner Cafe. We're happy to welcome um, to today's show, Melissa Bentley, who is the Director of Pupil Personnel Services, and Sarah Foley, who is the Transitions Facilitator. Hello. And I'm Donna Delisle, School Social Worker for Rockingham County Public Schools. Thank you so much, Melissa and Sarah, for being with us today. This is a very important topic, and I know um, our listeners will be interested in the information that we share today. Thank you for inviting us. You're welcome. Uh, I'm going to start with Melissa. And Melissa, most of us, I think, take for granted that special education has been uh, in our public school system for forever since the origin of public um, schools. But um, that's not really the case. I was wondering if you could give us a little history about how special education services came about in our country. Great. That's a that's a great question. And you're absolutely right. It's actually only been around really recently um, in public education. So there are three landmark laws that um, help get us to where we are today. And so the first of those was in 1973, uh, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 came about. So Congress passed that. And what it did, it basically guaranteed a basic civil right to people with disabilities. And it also required accommodations in schools for the first time ever and in larger society for adults. After 1973, it was determined that there needed to be more substantial law passed for students. And so in 1975, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act was passed, and that was referred to as Public Law 94-142, and it was really the beginning of the U.S. um, special education services in our schools. And then in 1990, the Individuals with Disability Education Act came along. We still refer to that as IDEA or IDEA. And it really changed that public law 94142 to IDEA. And it added individualized transition plans, which Sarah will talk about later with us. It also added autism as a special education category that wasn't considered actually in 1975. And it added traumatic brain injury as another disability category as well. And then really the third landmark law would be 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act or ADA came along and helped with um, adult access as far as employment, transportation, and public accommodations as well. So those are really the three landmark laws. Wow. Uh, Those are some pretty significant changes that were made uh, because of those laws. So if you were a parent or back in those times or prior to 1972, if you were a parent that had a child with um, a disability of some sort. Public education was not an option. Is that correct? Absolutely. Buildings and principals and teachers at the time could simply just turn a child away and say, we're not able to educate this child. And that was legal and, and, and lawful to do so at the time. So thank goodness that these laws came around that offered protections. And in 1975, it really guaranteed that all children are 
are educable and that all children are invited to a free and appropriate public education, just like their non-disabled peer, peers. Yes, thank goodness for, for these laws. Thinking in terms of how um, children get referred into or what's the process that parents uh, might expect if they have a child that they feel may suspect have a disability? Um, That's a really good question. So um, there's a Virginia code or law called Child Find, and we are obligated as a school division, just like every school division in Virginia, to maintain active and continuing Child Find to identify and locate children who reside in our community or in our jurisdiction who are between birth, actually, to age 21, and who are in need of any kind of special education or related services. That includes children that are highly mobile, maybe um, homeless, uh, children that could attend private schools, students that are children that are home instructed or home tutored, children that are in private schools. We partner with our local pediatricians to send us referrals. We also partner with um, the infant toddler connection here. And, um, and then, of course, our own teachers, parents, and professionals who work in buildings can make a referral if they suspect that a child might um, have a disability and might need to be evaluated. So really a variety of resources um, can make referrals to see if children can get some eligible for some services. That's true. We also offer, you know, just random screenings in our schools. So we look at hearing and vision vision and speech screenings at certain ages as well. I'm sure a lot of people have heard uh, the, the individualized educational plan or what we call an IEP. And I was wondering if you can kind of describe that. So there are federal laws surrounding disability. And for a student to have an IEP or individual education plan, a multidisciplinary team, which consists of uh, special education teachers, general education teachers, school psychologists, school social workers like yourself, uh, mainly a multidisciplinary team would uh, meet and consider the need to evaluate obtain parent permission to evaluate. And then once all of those components are in and all of those assessments, they actually look at very specific federal criteria. There are 13 different categories for special education, and we tend to separate those into low incidence disability categories and high incidence uh, disability categories. So low incidence disability categories um, are more rare, and that would be things like visual impairments, hearing impairments, deaf blindness, um, traumatic brain injury, and autism and um, intellectual disability are also considered low incidence disabilities. And then some of the more common high incidence disabilities would be like a speech language impairment uh, or a specific learning disability. Covers a lot. It does. Of areas, yes. Um, So special education is... is more than just a child receiving some extra help. Um, and that's evident by the individualized educational plan, the IEP. Um, can you kind of talk about the differences between what an IEP would look like versus extra um, assistance at a child who isn't identified 
may receive in the school. Absolutely. All of our schools have intervention teams and maybe grade level teams that get together that will help support students who might just need extra help. And so that could be in the form of working with a reading specialist or maybe having some individualized um, help from their teacher or maybe placed into small groups um, based on ability level, maybe for reading levels and things of that nature. But once a student is found eligible as a student with a disability and meets that federal criteria, then that's where the term specially designed instruction comes in. And so that means that they need more intensive and individualized instruction than what would typically be provided in a general education classrooms. And so the special education teachers that are licensed in our school division have professional training and expertise in individualizing and sort of intensifying the instruction and then also progress monitoring as far as any IEP goals that were created for that child and then making decisions and instructions based on the the data that they have collected from various assessments. A little bit more intensive with the IEP, it sounds like, although other interventions can also be very frequent that are not special education services. Right. And that could include things like maybe special transportation. Um, it could be speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, specific maybe health plans related to their IEPs as well. I think you mentioned that uh, there was a, a passage with um, 504 plan uh, that was sort of a, late, an, a later addition. Can you talk a little bit about what a 504 plan is? Yes. So Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 came about, and it's really a broader civil rights law. And so the purpose it was the purpose of that law was protecting people with disabilities from discrimination. Um, and giving them equal access. And so the ways that a 504 and an IEP um, are similar are in the fact that both could include accommodations for a student. But a 504 plan does not include any kind of specialized instruction from a special education teacher. Students that would qualify for a 504 plan would be in general education classes with non-disabled peers, but they might just have some accommodations provided through that plan. So it's really the interventions are specific to that student's needs in terms of um, what what would be helpful for them. Exactly. And it, some, some examples of accommodations that could be included in a 504 plan could be things like enlarged print, maybe if there's like a visual disability, being able to have extended time on test, maybe assistance with note taking or extended time on an assignment. But there just would not be specialized instruction from a special education teacher or related service provider in most cases. I see. You have uh, been in special education for many years, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes. Can you talk a little bit about where special education has moved from uh, and what you see on the horizon? Yes, I think that 20 years ago when I started out as a special education teacher, I think that we did a lot more what we would call pull out. We were pulling students out to special education classrooms and we were pulling them away from their non-disabled peers more often. And I think the focus now is we really want to make sure that students are included in the general education classroom, and even more importantly, in the general education curriculum as much as possible. That will help get them ready for 
middle school, high school, and then most importantly, transitioning them on to to high school and outside of high school for whatever their their dreams may be. Well, thank you, Melissa. That that was a lot of information. And you mentioned the word transition. So I'm going to transition over to Sarah, who, um, uh, you know, special education services uh, follow children throughout their career. And Sarah, you, if you want to talk a little bit about what might uh, the middle school experience or high school experience be for a child with a an IEP or individualized um, educational plan. Absolutely. Um, middle school is where the students are beginning to figure out what they want to do with their life when they get out of high school, but that's such a long way away. They may not have a clue what they want to do. So in middle school, they start focusing on what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? What type of job might you like to have um, and figure out what suits their needs, um, for what they what they need, whether if you like to work outside or you prefer not to be in a noisy place when you are working, just to hone in on those needs and wants and desires as as it relates to what they want to do outside of school. That's when we tend to start bringing in some of the community supports, which we can talk about in a little bit, of how they can help down the line. Okay. So that's the middle school kind of exploring what what a child you know student may want to do. Uh, then we move into high school. So what what would that experience be like? At the high school, we really start narrowing down how we can prepare our students for exiting school services, whether it be onto um, community college or a four-year college or into the workforce or continuing studies vocationally training-wise. So we take what they want to do and we write the goals in their IEP or the individualized education plan to meet their needs to help them reach this goal based on whatever path they decide to take. So if they if they um, are wanting to go to college, we will help narrow down what the classes they want to take to go to college. Do we need to bring in supports? Whatever they might need to help them narrow that search down and, and be specific as to what they want to do. So an IEP is not limiting for them in terms of achievement of what they might want to achieve. Absolutely. We want them to be successful. We want them to do whatever we can to reach their goals. If we have someone who wants to go to college and be a doctor, we're going to do whatever we can to help make that happen within our reach in a public school setting. If they want to pursue a vocational trade, we will do whatever we can within the setting and vocational training within our county at, at, at MTC, our Mass Nut and Tactical Center, which has a wide variety of vocational sources to help our students be successful because college is not for everyone. Uh, some people prefer to do the hands-on work and they want to go to MTC to get those skills. And some people don't want to to go to college or do MTC vocational training. They just want to go work. So whatever their goals and dreams are, I have students all the time that tell me, I just want to be a cashier at Walmart. Okay, well, let's talk about the skills that you need to be a cashier at Walmart because you have to have skills to do that. And we will tailor their needs in their academic setting to help them get those skills. Now, of course, we have the requirements for their um, academic classes. If they're working for a standard diploma, we have those set requirements by the state, but we will tailor their more specific needs in their IEP for whatever strategies they might need to get those jobs. Mass and Technical Center is a great 
uh, resource. Uh, and we, we need them desperately. We need those kids coming out of those programs for sure. Absolutely. And they are fantastically knowledgeable in their skills to help these students be successful. So you mentioned earlier uh, some of the community agencies or resources that are available for um, particularly high school students. Can you talk a little bit about those agencies? Absolutely. There's three main agencies that we work with, um, that I work with on a weekly and monthly basis. The first one being the Community Services Board. That is the earliest community agency that we recommend families reaching out to for community services. The community services board is a, for lack of better words, is a little more limiting as to who qualifies for services. You must have an ID or intellectual disability or a DD developmental disability to qualify for services. Young children who are under the age of three often will work with the infant toddler connection, but when right before they turn three, all those services end and families have to reapply. So if you are a family with a student who might qualify for these services, you need to reach back out to the community services board to uh, reapply for those services. And we can help you do that. That's probably the most important community agency at the elementary level is the community services board. And even if you're not sure if your child would be qualified for those services, reach out anyway. They have a wide range of materials and, and, and assessments that they use for the students to see if they qualify for services. When students reach the age of 14, which is typically sub seventh grade, eighth grade, sometimes even ninth grade, that's when we can start bringing in what I feel is one of the most important community agencies is DARS, which is the Department of Aging and Rehabilitative Services. That's our work support. If you have a student who is going to be in need of finding, finding a job or not sure what they want to do, DARS is your community agency. Anyone with an IEP or a 504 can qualify for services from DARS. But if you're listening and you have a student who doesn't qualify for an IEP or a 504, we also have another group of gentlemen in our office that works with those students. There are work-based learning facilitators, and we can put you in touch with those gentlemen as well. But that could be another episode for another day. DARS is um, wonderful. I work with DARS on a daily basis to help our students be successful. Uh, finding a job, holding a job, if they need supports on a job, um, and they can start that as early as age 14, and DARS can stay as long or as little bit amount of time as a student needs, and they're not a one-and-done agency. If you are successful in finding a job and you no longer need their support, then they will back back off and back up a little bit. But if something happens when you have a job or you need to find a new job, they will come back in. And in most cases, not all, but most cases, it's a free service for families if they qualify. And that will be a conversation with DARS um, once we apply. And we can do that um, through the student's case manager in their home school. The third agency that we work with that is not as knowledgeable to some families is Vail, which is the Valley Association for Independent Living. They work more hand-in-hand with uh, Community Services Board and sometimes with DARS, depending on what the the, the need is. Vail is a cost-based service, but that's a conversation that we can have at a later time with families if they feel that Vail is appropriate for them. And they are open to anyone uh, with an IEP or a 504. 
Wow, it's exciting because there's a lot, a lot of services that um, are available to our students. That- there absolutely is, and and one one roadblock that a family, a lot of families are like to have is they don't know how to reach out to get these services. Community Services Board, we can give you information for Community Services Board, but families have to reach out on their own to do that. We are not allowed to make that contact for you. However, we can make contact with DARS and we can, um, you just have to reach out to us or your school case manager and we can put you in contact with DARS and get that relationship and partnership started for your student. All right. Um, so kind of in closing here, I'd like to ask both of you, we'll start with Melissa. Uh, could you, in your opinion, what do you think are some of the things that are uh, helpful for parents uh, who have children that have an IEP? I think that most importantly, we want our families to feel supported. There's so much that goes into um helping students with disabilities. And that's, that's true in school and outside of school. And so if families feel like they need support um, outside of school, they can also reach out to um, the, the team members in the buildings to try to find out what some of those resources are. And just know that um, we're here, we're here to help all students in Rockingham County. There's, there's over 11,000 students in Rockingham County and about 1,300 of them have a, dis- a documented disability. And so that's about 11% of our population. And we have phenomenal staff and they're here to help. And so please reach out for any questions that you may have about how we can better help their IEP process and get them through school. That's, that's great information. And Sarah, what, what would you add to that? terms of for parents? I would just add it's never too early to start the transition process. You know, it's never too early. Our, our children, I remember my my son who's now in fifth grade, he did a book in first grade of what I want to be when I grow up. It's never too early to start that process and bring in those community agencies on board. You may not be able to access services right away, but you can get on whatever lists you need to be on for services for when they get out of high school. And, and exit school services. So it's never too early to start. It's never too early to make those phone calls. And we're happy to help you do that by reaching out to us by email, by phone, or to the case managers within your buildings. Great. Well, Melissa and Sarah, thank you so much for sharing all your information and your many years of experience with us. And I appreciate, and I'm sure all of our parents and listeners will appreciate you as well. So thank you. Thank you all. Thank you all so much. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for Episode 3 of Community Partner Cafe. Be sure to tune in the first Thursday of each month for new episodes. Thank you for listening to the RCPS Community Partner Cafe. If you would like to learn more about the information discussed on this podcast, visit us at www.rcps.net. If you have questions related to your own child, please contact their school directly. The information shared on this podcast does not substitute for advice directly related to your child. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to share.